This is Eric Corey. Now, the word socialism or socialist gets thrown around all so frequently that any real understanding of the term has kind of lost all its impact. But socialism is a real thing, with historic record of death and destruction in horrifying proportions. And it's also something that is in direct conflict with the laws of our land for those very reasons. Socialism requires an all-powerful central government, and our Constitution is based on limited government. You see, the document itself gives rules by which the government can operate, and they are all negative dictates. The Constitution describes what a central government cannot do, literally prohibiting the evolution of such a government. And it does so because socialism is such an easy sell to the simple minds of the masses, and it is the perfect breeding ground for political corruption. The draw of socialism is too strong for any government that consists of human beings to resist the, the allure of such power. And it's exactly why our Constitution was created with its Bill of Rights. These are absolute rights of the people that were intended to remove the opportunity for such temptation to, to even form. But, but even with all those constitutional mechanisms designed to prohibit such a thing, socialism is nevertheless alive and well in these here United States. It is so deeply woven into the fabric of every American's life that they don't even know it's there. But it is there. And just like every other attempt to institute socialism, this too has gone down in flames. Now, the first attempt at socialism on these lands occurred very early in our colonial history with the Pilgrims, a deeply religious group who wanted to do God's work on earth and, and create peace on earth and happiness for people. It was truly virtuous goals. The leader was William Bradford, and his utopian vision was based on trusting in the goodness of his fellow man, a flawed assumption and a simple explanation for all of socialism's constant failures. You see, the initial arrangement of the settlement was to hold all land in common, and everyone would work the land, and everyone would share in the harvest. But as is always the case in the collective, the hard work to create the harvest was performed by a limited number of the members of the collective. But it was evenly shared and consumed by the entire collective, including those who didn't work at all. Now, this naturally removed all incentive to work and created deep divisions among the people. And after four or five years of the system, well, there was nothing but famine and hatred. You see, Bradford was not an idiot. He decided to change the plan and divide all the common property into privately owned lots among all the people. He then instituted a capitalistic system that allowed each person to grow what they wanted and own 100% of their harvest on their privately owned property. They were then free to trade and barter with other members who would do the same. And what happened is always what happens with capitalistic policy. The harder you work, the richer you got, which then naturally expanded the bounty of the harvest and the incentive to work and innovate. It unleashed the unlimited potential of human nature through the unrestricted opportunity for prosperity. Now, the result of Bradford's plan was so successful and so fruitful that we celebrate its accomplishments to this day, nearly 400 years later. It's called Thanksgiving, the blessing of the bounty, a bounty that we all enjoy because of the establishment of capitalism and the rejection of socialism. It was one of the first of, of now callous examples of the successful transformation from socialism to capitalism that has occurred throughout the world. It, it happens so often now that it's become a cliché. And I struggle with the question of how a nation whose incredible success has been based solely on the capitalistic model could give any credence to the socialist model in any way, in any shape or any form. But we do. And we have for a very long time. And the people who lead the charge towards socialism in our time are either ignorant to the lessons of history or corrupt to the core. Now, I call it the crime of the century, but you probably know it as the Social Security Act of 1935. 
Now, I have researched and written extensively on the topic, and I still struggle with the magnitude of the adverse effects of this act of government has had on every American, those of us still alive, and Americans yet to be born. It became law in 1935 in response to the Great Depression as a way to help the nation recover, and it represents American socialists' first real victory in the battle against capitalism. Its premise was simple. The government withholds money directly from your paycheck and saves it for you, and then gives it back to you incrementally when you retire. Now, but also in that act was a provision to take some of that money that comes directly out of your paycheck and give it to those who the government deemed to be less fortunate than you. Now, that less fortunate provision was made as such, a, as such an ambiguous term as to allow for the broadest of interpretations. Now, while the legislation did clearly spell out the definition of less fortunate at the time it was enacted, you see, it has been modified and categories have been added over the years using this backdoor access of ambiguity. And they did it all in the name of Social Security. But so open-ended was the definition of the less fortunate that it now allows nearly 40% of this country's population to claim some form of less fortunate status. Now understand that that 40% is not those who paid into the system. These are people who have been added to the welfare role of the state and granted the money because of their less fortunate status. You see, most of them never paid a dime into the system. Now there have been thousands of studies on the political, economical, and social effects of this epic piece of legislation. And they've all concluded the same thing, that it has been an epic mistake. And of course, all the academics who have done many of these studies have provided volumes of learned and eloquently parsed analyzations of the act, but I'll give it to you in a more concise and somewhat less scholarly summary. The act, it simply provided the government the incentive and the means to redistribute earned money from the working class to the poor and the needy, the, the less fortunate. But the kicker here is that the designation of those to be deemed less fortunate and entitled to this free money was at the complete discretion of the politician. Now, this gave the politician the ability to create a dependent class of people who would automatically vote for the person who promised to keep all that free money coming. And the bigger the pool, the greater the number of votes. It's just that simple. Now, so successful was that redistributive legislation that it now covers 40% of the population. 40% that is now dependent on a central government to take the harvest of those who worked the fields and give it to those who didn't. It was sold as a way to demonstrate our virtuous nature to ourselves, but what it actually was was a way to grow the control and reach of government beyond its constitutional dictates. It's a brilliant strategy to circumvent the Constitution and its negative dictates and institute socialism. So effective has this strategy been that even breathing any word of ending or even altering the socialist policy program is political suicide. And here's a different story that you probably don't even know. You see, when it started in 1935, 1% of all wages earned from every working American was taken directly from the employee and another 1% from the employer in the name of the employee. Now, at the time in 1935, it was a small amount of money. But after World War II and the baby boom and decades of increases in the size of the American workforce and the increases in the payroll tax from the 1% to, to the 7.5% from each that it stands today, well, this program has generated revenue to the government in numbers the government could have never imagined. The money that has been coming in during most of the life of this act has been way, way, way more every year than the money they needed to pay out the beneficiaries of the act each and every year. So year after year of huge sums of money coming in automatically from every paycheck of every person with a job was piling up in the government coffers. It was a windfall of cash like, like you cannot imagine. 
And what the law promised to do was to save and invest all that extra money, allowing it to accrue interest and grow so the government would have plenty of money to pay for the retirement of the people who paid into the system and for all those they deemed to be less fortunate. And had that actually happened, well, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. But that's not what they did with all that extra money. You see, human nature kicked in, and Congress granted themselves access to that extra money. And because there was so much extra money, they used it to create a dependent class who would in turn cement their place in power, repeating socialism's fatal flaw of expecting good faith of your fellow man to act in, in good faith. And that's how we got to 40% of the population. The government subsidized being less fortunate, which naturally grew the pool of less fortunates who also vote. And once again, the people who determined what to do with all that extra money, they spent it all because they were able to convince the simple-minded that it would be in the name of helping the less fortunate. And the simple-minded, along with all those getting a piece of their harvest without doing any farming, grew to such large numbers that they guaranteed the re-election of those who controlled the spending of all that money. But the only problem now is that not only is all that extra money gone, but the money that was supposed to have been saved for you and paid back in retirement is all going to have to be borrowed. So check this out, right? All you working people out there, you will be paying 15% of your gross earnings to the government every paycheck for the rest of your working lives. And that money that the government is promising to give you back after you turn 60-something has already been spent. Let that sink in. Every week, you're giving the government cash money that they promise to give you back with interest, but they're going to have to borrow it from your kids to do so. Now, as bad as all that is, the same stupidity that gave us Social Security has once again allowed our government to make the same mistake again. You see, this was only our nation's first experiment with our special brand of socialism. The second attempt was much more brazen and with a much thinner veiling of its intended implementation of socialist policy. It's called the Affordable Care Act of 2010, also known as Obamacare, and it represents this nation's second incursion into the world of socialism by socializing the entire health care industry. And once again, what was sold to the simple-minded as an obligation of a compassionate nation was nothing more than an attempt to override our Constitution's limited government intent. What we were promised was lower cost and greater access to our health care. And now, 13 years later, the numbers are all in and the winners and losers have been sorted out and the money has changed hands. Now, for me personally, Obamacare, I paid $500 per month for my family of four for like nearly 20 years. Now, that same family of four will cost me $2,000 per month. And that's only if you have a job, because if you don't have a job, well, your cost per month for the best health care the world can offer will be zero. You see, there's nothing affordable about the Affordable Care Act. It has produced nothing even remotely resembling affordable. And its results are exactly as would be expected when you're arresting the entire success of the act on the good faith of your fellow man. Once again, demonstrating socialism's fatal flaw. The only people who benefited from this piece of socialist crap are the ones who funded all the central planning politicians who wrote and made the law possible. And if you have any doubt about any of that, it's all a matter of public record. And that's why I'm not going to go in the weeds on the numbers here. I'll leave that up to the listener who may care enough to check it out for themselves. See, you can go to FEC.gov to find out where your favorite politician receives their campaign funds. And then you can go look up the stock values for public companies on those lists that gave the money to your favorite politician. The direct correlation, it's all a matter of public record. Now, you can pick any national health care provider. You can pick them all. It doesn't matter. What you will find is that the stock value of the 10 major health care providers since this law was enacted are up, on average, 2,000%.
Now, is that just a coincidence or a government in cahoots with major corporations and the conning of the American people for financial gain? It's probably also a coincidence that the largest lobby in Washington, D.C. is the pharmaceutical slash healthcare industry by far. They are nearly double the size of the next largest lobby group. And this healthcare and pharmaceutical lobby distributes among all the politicians in Washington, D.C. approximately $700 million per year in the form of campaign or other less overt funding. Now, is this all just a random coincidence of the Affordable Care Act? Or was it a cold calculation to replace a capitalistic marketplace with a government-mandated social program? I will contend it was a bold-faced attempt at instituting socialism at a time of relative world peace and, and no real emergency. You see, people need a cause that moves them emotionally, and the simple-minded once again moved by the altruistic empty promises of free health care. The original concept contained the same flaw that all socialist programs suffer, the assumption of good faith. The logic assumed that by creating a law requiring everyone to buy health insurance or face a fine, that everyone would buy the insurance. Now, to be accurate here, that term fine was later changed to tax by a, a meddling Supreme Court that made the unprecedented move of changing the language of the law on their own, which was the only way they could then deem it to be constitutional. But that's a whole nother podcast. The question begs that if those who thought people would, because of their best intentions of a virtuous government, actually buy the mandated insurance, or were they so narrow-minded as to be blinded by their noble intentions that they believed it to be so? Or was it just a huge scam that worked exactly as planned? You see, you didn't have to be Nostradamus to predict that most people preferred to pay the tax instead of the overpriced health care insurance. And the young and healthy people that were supposed to be paying the health care cost of the old and sick people, they said, screw that, and decided to take their own chances with their own health and save 500 bucks a month. So from the very start, as many have predicted, this system has failed the intended beneficiary and extraordinarily enriched only the lucky few well-connected corporations who funded the whole thing. And now, just 13 years in, the amount of money now coming into the national health care system is far less than the cost needed to provide the government-funded health care for the masses as promised. As a result, and once again as predicted, the original bullshit estimate for the cost of Obamacare has to date doubled from the original $1 trillion estimate to well over $2 trillion and rising. So as a result of all the corrupt good intentions of the American socialists, fewer people actually have health insurance than prior to the law's enactment. And the cost for health care is expanding at a, at a breakneck speed, and the quality of care has, by all available accounting, diminished greatly. And that's your different story that too few fully comprehend. We all go on week after week giving our hard-earned money to a government knowing that that money will never be returned to us in any form in our lifetime. And I can't believe how so few can't comprehend that we have allowed socialism to take hold so deeply in our lives. My only hope is to inform the masses of the clear and present danger these programs pose to our future and to shame those who continue to support these programs in the face of their ongoing and demoralizing financial failures. See, I know how wedded most of you are to your political party and how vehemently you are opposed to the opposition, and I get it. You're principled and you stand for what you believe in to be right, and you would rather toe the party line in defeat than give in to the opposition. But with that immovable attitude comes cost that will soon bankrupt the nation and destroy the futures of our children and our grandchildren. I just hope your idealistic vision of good governance is worth it. Because if you still think socialism is superior to capitalism in any way, and that you still have faith in your government to make things right, well, you're not only the problem, you're an idiot.
See, you can continue to step over the devastation that lies at your feet with your only concern of not spilling your latte and continue voting for those currently in power all because you don't want to be wrong. Or you can drop all this pretense of being smarter than thou and face the crisis of our failures before it's too late. And we will forever be known as the generation that failed to keep this republic. Socialism is real and it's happening right now. The numbers are in and the failures are upon us. It's a reality that comes directly out of your paycheck every week and goes into the black hole of socialist policy never to be seen again. Now, unless the masses rise up to change these policies, historians will look back on us with a, a deserved disgust. They will say that we were no smarter than any previous civilization, and even with all this technology and, and all that historic data and this rock-solid constitution, that we somehow still managed to ignore it all, and we extinguished mankind's first real attempt to grant freedoms and liberties and justice to its people. This is Eric Corey, and I just can't let that stand.